This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Omari Averett Phillips, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Barbara Combs about her new book, Bodies Out of Place, Theorizing Anti-Blackness in U.S. Society. Dr. Barbara Combs, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm very glad to be here. We're very glad to have to have you here. Um, so I wonder if you could just begin by uh, telling us just a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, my parents were from Alabama. Uh, moved there for a better uh, for a better life for us. And um, in my time in uh, in Cincinnati, uh, I was in college. It was uh, 1984. My parents. Um, were both factory workers and wanted um, wanted a better life for me. And so at that time, uh, I felt there were like limited options. People became doctors and lawyers and uh, nurses. And I said, I'll be a lawyer. And they said, you know, good girl. Um, and, and so I actually, my act of rebellion was to get a master's in English. Uh, and then I went to law school. I went to Ohio State for law school and practiced law for about seven Seven uh, years, and likely I would have practiced for longer were it not um, uh, for one of those life things that happened. My dad was dying of lung cancer, um, and uh, and as I talked with him about that, asking him if he regretted some of his choices, uh, he said no, that he needed those things to get up and go to a job every day that he didn't like. Uh, and I realized that I didn't really like being a lawyer. Um, and so I, I made that decision then to do something with my life that, uh, that I actually enjoyed. And because of my master's in English. Uh, I had an opportunity to teach uh, college English as a lecturer uh, and fell in love uh, with uh, with teaching and later decided to go back and get the degree that was respected in academia. And so I, uh, I pursued a PhD uh, in sociology and uh, I have never regretted that decision. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, getting into this book, I, I wonder how, how did you come to this project? So at the time, as I, as I said, um, I came to sociology, to academia as a second uh, career. Uh, my wonderful husband, we've been married now for 28 years, and, um, and, and he wanted we'd made a number of moves for him and for his, uh, his career. And so when I finished uh, my PhD, he said, we'll go where you have an opportunity. And I had an opportunity at the University of Mississippi um, and a joint appointment in sociology and Southern studies. And so in many ways, it was an ideal uh, kind of appointment because I was really interested, you know, in both, uh, in both areas, but it was Mississippi. And we had to have that discussion, right? We had to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, we were moving uh, a black uh, professional family moving to uh, to Mississippi. Um, and in my time in, um, I still have a, a great group of friends uh, from there. But as I was moving through the space at the University uh, of Mississippi, uh, there were just all kinds of observations that um, that I was making and basically wanted to know, you know, why people, the age-old humanities question, you know, why do uh, good people, you can't see my air quotes, but uh, do uh, do bad uh, things. And so I really started trying to make sense of uh, the space that I was in, uh, the, the, the positionality uh, that I had, and I started writing down kind of these musings, and I would share them with people from time to time, and they're like, Barb, you 
you know, I think that you're on uh, onto something uh, there. And and so it was a series of racialized and homophobic incidents that uh, were happening. I was there from 2011 to 2015. Um, and I want to be very clear. I'm not disparaging Mississippi. I'm not disparaging the University of Mississippi, because in my research, what I found is that we use places like the Deep South, like Mississippi, to, and we vilify those. And then we, in our minds, say that's where all the racism resides. That's where all the bad people. And we fail to look at our, ourselves and we fail to look at our, uh, our communities. So I want to be very clear about that. But there was something going on in Mississippi in that I found that I was both an insider and an outsider. And so, you know, my intersectional, uh, uh, um, um, lens, you know, was just, you know, going, uh, uh, going uh, crazy, because as a black uh, woman, uh, walking through uh, the space, there were times when I felt very much uh, an outsider. Um, and there were also times my Christian identity is important to me, uh, where I felt very much like an in insider, even though it was a state school, um, people would ask questions like, not do you attend, you know, a, a worship, a house of worship, it was where do you attend? And it was always church, the, the expectation was always that. And so it was kind of like, going through that idea uh, about, uh, about embodiment, uh, about uh, this deep uh, history that I began to just try and make sense, uh, uh, make sense of it all. And so uh, the theory emerges out, uh, out of that. <laughs> Wonderful. And so Bodies Out of Place is the title of your work. It's also this framework that you construct during this time, too. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about the framework and, and a little bit more, I think, also about how you sort of uh, develop the framework itself. Oh, awesome. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you so much uh, for that question. And and I have to give a nod to when I was in graduate school, uh, one of the books that I read that I really, uh, really uh, affected me was Nirmal Purwar, P-U-W-A-R uh, book, Space Invaders, Race, gender and bodies out of place. Um, and the, uh, she's a scholar at Goldsmith, I believe, is where uh, still uh, is. And in it, she described a way that women and ethnic minorities are perceived as not belonging uh, in space and are, are seen as uh, space invaders and talked about, you know, the somatic norm, this bodily expectation about who occupies certain positions and uh, and, and places. And that really, uh, that really stuck, uh, stuck with me. And so, um, and so as I began to try to make sense of, uh, of incidents at the University of Mississippi and particularly uh, when there was a, um, a mini race riot um, after the second election of Barack Obama. We had students who uh, were burning Obama-Biden posters and running around campus yelling, you know, F, uh, you know, F Obama. Um, and so in trying to make sense of that, um, I, I, I came to this uh, realization uh, that that black uh, bodies were not um we resided uh, on uh, on the campus. We resided, you know, in uh, in this kind of shared space, but we were uh, we were fringe. And so, for me, as I tried to make sense of that, what uh, what I came to uh, was the idea uh, that that there was a cognitive shift that happened uh, in uh, among black persons with the election of Obama um, because 
for me, there was still this kind of Jim Crow order about where people belonged and with whom. And and while it was no longer law, uh, it was often it's often subjugated persons who are you know complicit in making sure to maintain this order. Sometimes we do it for our own safety. I want to be very clear about uh, about that. Uh, but but again, the election of Obama, uh, not once but twice, it's a cognitive shift about where we belong. Because in my lifetime, I'd always heard people say, I'll never see a black president. And so when that happens, it creates a shift about what opportunities are open for us. And so as black and brown persons try uh, to to move into or more fully assume uh, spaces and uh, and our own, you know, uh, presentation uh, of self that embraces you know, a kind of cultural uh, embodiment, I saw a pushback. And that pushback was sometimes very subtle, but in an attempt to push Black people back into a position of subservience that replicated uh, the Jim Crow uh, order. And so for me, the first time I used the theory uh, was in an article that I wrote that was published in Critical Sociology, and it was called Black and Brown Bodies Out of Place Towards a Theoretical Understanding of Systemic uh, Voter Suppression. And I view uh, my framework, Bodies Out of Place, BOP, as both a theory and a method. Uh, so for a theory, uh, it offers you know a data gathering tool aimed at creating new knowledge because uh, just the idea about what it is that we're seeing and interpreting some of the microaggressions that uh, that Blacks uh, face in society was often done through a lens that wasn't our own. And so it's the idea of using this as a data gathering tool to create new knowledge. It, it uh, nod to critical race theory as a method. It requires oppositional kind of counter narrative uh, reading, but at the center of my theory uh, and method is a recognition um, that uh, that we need to focus on uh, on marginalized bodies, and so um, so I, I I have these eight tenets that as I was walking around in the early days, walking around uh, the University of Mississippi, but then other places as well, I would write down these tenets and it was, okay, this is how I see the world organized. And so it starts with maybe consider this uh, this position, this way of seeing the world. And, and so for me, it's about in a sports game, now we're kind of used to a playback uh, from a different angle. And so many people might view a play and think, oh, that ball is in. But then when you see it from a different angle, you realize that you are wrong. And I think too few people uh, realize, embrace the idea that still today, Black persons are subjugated in this uh, nation and this nation that we all love. And so I offer a framework that says, hey, might you consider it from another uh, perspective? And so uh, and so the tenets that I arrived at, um, you know, BOP theory, I say, begins with the premise that racism is systemic and deeply ingrained uh, in society. Again, for me, too many people uh, want to um, want to reject that idea. And I say, you know, let's just sit with it for a minute uh, and and let's consider it from another uh, from another perspective. Um, uh, the, the second tenant talks about something that's very important because uh, for me, I thought we as a society were really quick to say, oh, racism is over. Uh, it's only a few bad actors. And we 
we would snap pictures of, uh, of perhaps a college setting or a company uh, or a public park. And you would see lots of different kinds of people there in the park. So for me, one of the important tenets of BOP is it recognizes that physical integration is often falsely equated with social integration in society. And just because we see physically integrated spaces doesn't mean that we have that, uh, that social integration. Um, you know, a third tenant says that, uh, talks about uh, whites p- have a possessive investment in whiteness. And of course, this goes back, you know, to Du Bois um, and, and that claims of colorblindness, uh, claims of colorblindness serve a purpose. And and one of those purposes is to deny white privilege, to deny the existence of racism, but also to circumvent responsibility for continuing racism. Um, And and so those, you know, uh, those are just three of of the tenants. But again, as I was walking through spaces, it was about writing down how society was organized. And, And another, I won't go over all all of the tenants, but another that's really uh, important is the idea uh, that racism that we I've seen a tension about um, you know we need to understand and focus on systemic racism in society and then people will talk about yes you know there have been these bad performances by a few bad actors and so there's a tension between individual racism and systemic racism but I argue in my theory that it's on an interconnected loop uh, that individuals are embedded in social systems. They're not divorced from them. Individuals are embedded in social uh, systems. So it is uh, it is a falsehood to talk about one or the other, but we have to recognize uh, that individual actors are persons deeply embedded in, in social systems, in institutions, in groups, in clubs. In uh, in neighborhoods, and so uh, and so, we need to talk about that interconnected uh, loop. Uh, and so, in some, for me, it's all about you know uh, the ideas that I convey in this theory. Uh, bodies out of place can be summed up by. Uh, in the old order, the old Jim Crow order, you know, black bodies might be per se out of place in certain spaces. Here, it is an idea about, all right, who can wield power and who should be subject to uh, to that, uh, that power. And so when I saw the election of Obama being accomplished by a coalition of minority voters, then we have white push back against that in attacks on some of the very voting mechanisms that are most often used by uh, by black and brown people uh, and poor people. And so it was the idea that you don't get to decide and we need to push you back into, into place. So you're mentioning pushback, which I think is is a really interesting concept that you bring up in your work. And so I'd like to ask you a little bit about that. So I'm wondering, first off, um, what your definition of violence in this in this concept of pushback is, um, and secondly, sort of uh, what's the rationale of this violence and sort of racial exclusion, and then how does that also affect Black people from all walks of life? Yes, yes, great question. And you were a little the audio uh, was going in and out a little bit, oh, but sorry. Um, Okay, no problem. But I know you asked about violence and my definition uh, of violence, and and that's such an important uh, uh, important question because um, I've seen a, a a preoccupation, a continuing discussion about police violence against black uh, black bodies, black persons. Uh, when I use uh, bodies again, it's it, um, it's not. 
Um, it, it's not de in a dehumanizing way. I'm just uh, using uh, that in my conceptualization. But um, there was lots of discussion about police violence against Blacks. Um, and that is, is an important discussion. But for me, it was important to communicate that there is violence uh, that Black persons face every day uh, in our society. And that violence... Uh, uh, is might be economic violence, it could be political violence, it could be cultural violence in terms of attacks on how you can wear uh, wear your hair uh, or what what is proper and deemed appropriate uh, in spaces. And certainly uh, there is the idea of physical uh, violence. But for me, I view violence very very uh, broadly. And I also say that violence occurs on a continuum uh, from mild all the way up to the uh, extreme being the loss, uh, the loss of life. And because of that violence, um, and, and it is violence in the, uh, in the form of anti-Black sentiments and anti-Black uh, uh, ideas uh, that are an attack on Black psyche, uh, Black well-being, uh, and safety to travel uh, freely from place, uh, place to place. Um, and so, uh, so for, uh, for me, it's important, it was important to communicate, especially at this time, uh, which much of it, the heart of it, I was writing during uh, during the pandemic. And I knew that tomorrow wasn't promised. And I wanted people to understand the uh, additional weight that, uh, that Black persons, I'm a Black, uh, I'm a proud Black woman in a society that doesn't value either. Uh, and so I want, and I'm the mother of a Black, uh, a Black son and a Black uh, daughter. And I wanted people to understand, uh, understand uh, that. And I thought about, um, again, my history in English. And so some of the poems from the Harlem Renaissance that I really uh, loved. And I thought about the poem, you know, we wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile with torn and bleeding hearts we smile. So I wanted to talk about, uh, about that because I think it is important for people to know the continuing uh, attack uh, that is going on and that microaggressions are, are not by any means uh, micro and that the cumulative weight uh, of those is being borne uh, out. Uh, and, in, in, and because many of us uh, Rather than uh, rather than attack uh, others, it is a weight that we physically bear in terms of you know health consequences that it brings, uh, and so I wanted people to understand uh, that uh, that the violence that uh, that we face is not just um, not just police violence, because that allows other people to be exempted and to not see their role and their complicity in these continuing attacks. Yes, thank you. And uh, so one of the things that you've write about is sort of how the presumption of Black criminality sort of runs through this framework uh, and runs through, I think, sort of this rationale of racial exclusion as well. Um, so I'm just wondering, in what ways does presumption follow Black people and what sort of effect does it have when it comes to sort of racial exclusion? Yes, yes. That presumption of criminality. It's like, what are you doing here? Uh, and sometimes the words themselves, uh, you, uh, you don't hear it there, but it is the inflection. There's an idea, there's a raised eyebrow. There is, uh, there is an idea that your presence in, uh, in physical space uh, is for some illegitimate uh, purpose 
or uh, or that you gained entry to the space by some illegitimate means, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, how did you get into in the flagship institution in Georgia is University of Georgia. How did you get in to the University uh, of Georgia? Uh, and, and when I talk about how this presumption of criminality runs through all of the frames, uh, there was a piece that I did in Context uh, Magazine, uh, which is the magazine of the um, American Sociological Association, um, how in ingrained racism became uh, invisible. And I use the example of Ahmaud Aubrey to thread it through uh, those, those frames that I offer. Um, and so in many ways, again, I suggest that this presumption of criminality runs through all uh, of the frames. And it's... Um, it's at the root of, of the continuing kind of surveillance strategies that seek to monitor uh, black bodies, whether it is, you know, being subject to an extra pat down uh, when you're at the airport uh, because because of your hairstyle uh, or because uh, because your bottom uh, is like mine is more generous uh, than uh, than other uh, than other folks uh, or if it is going into a store or a neighborhood again you see uh, Ahmad Aubrey uh, they are going into a neighborhood that idea. Uh, that many of the people who uh, who testified from that Satilla Shores community said, oh, well, he didn't, you know, he didn't wave. And I talk about that as a performance of belonging in the space, that they wanted Ahmad Arbery to wave to them to make them feel better and like, oh, no, I am not that kind of Black person that you need to be suspicious to. And I ask, well, did anyone wave to uh, wave to him? So it's this presumption that you are there for some uh, for some illegitimate uh, purpose, or that you gained entry uh, by some uh, some kind of illegitimate means. And so, in the frames, typologies that I offer for how does this idea of a Body, black body out of place work. The frames that I offer, uh, one is the historical uh, fear, uh, fear factor, and that suggests that uh, any kind of preemptive move for self-defense that, uh, that a black person might make is perceived, it's perceived as, a, as, as, as an attack. Um, and so then it's used to justify uh, self-defense, uh, well, then called self-defense on the part uh, of those who might, um, uh, who might uh, push uh, back. I have the presumed criminal frame. It's very clear uh, in, in that. Another frame that I offer is Massa uh, has spoken and it's built on uh, on this uh, presumption uh, that um, it, it's an extension of the concept of whiteness as uh, as property, and that uh, whatever command is spoken. So when uh, when the McMichaels are chasing Ahmaud Arbery through a neighborhood and commanding him to stop, they actually expected they're in, in, a, in a truck. They're chasing him through the neighborhood. They've got be, uh, they've got weapons. And yet they legitimately uh, expected him uh, him to stop. They Massa has commanded you to stop. And so the reasonableness uh, of uh, of their request is uh, is presumed, um, and and certainly in the idea that you don't belong here, you can see that presumption of criminality just in uh, just in the frame. Uh, and and the fifth frame I offer is it's all uh, all white space, and that that white space is amorphous and it's ever uh, and it's ever shifting, and so uh, white space is 
is subject to reclamation. And so you see this in things like uh, like gentrification going on in some communities. And I want to be com- uh, clear that uh, black gentrification or gentrification doesn't always involve whites displacing uh, uh, black and brown communities, but uh, but it has often. And it gives you an idea about this idea of, uh, of, of white space and how it expands uh, and contracts and it's always subject to uh, to reclamation. And so you uh, spoke a little bit earlier about sort of the way we localize racism to the South. Um, and one of the things I think that students in classes that I've taught have always sort of struggled with is the localization of, of racism and um, working against racism to the civil rights movement. Um, and you, you write about how there's sort of been a milder form of racial oppression that sort of gripped the U.S. since 1969. Um, so I wonder if you could explain that a little bit and also talk about how that form of racial oppression also helps to sort of erase racists themselves. Yes, yes. And so um, the first title of my book uh, was Blackout. And when it was time, um, there were a couple of other titles that had come out recently uh, with that name. And so, uh, so it, um, so we changed it. And so I want to, in talking about this kind of milder, uh, perceived milder form uh, form of oppression, uh, I want to start with uh, a little bit of a discussion of what I call, uh, uh, call blackout. Um, and so it, the concept of blackout for me, I define as, you know, uh, black bodies are often welcome in physical and social white space, but black embodiment is not. So black embodiment, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm defining as use of the flesh to convey certain cultural, ideolog- ideological, or other messages about identity, consciousness, and belonging uh, to, uh, to a social uh, group. Um, and I talk about how Black bodies are welcome in white space so long as, you know, there are not too many of us. <laughs> and then it challenges the idea of, is this, you know, white space? Black bodies are welcome in white space, provided uh, we don't disturb or challenge the normative sensibilities or practices of the space. And so uh, so I think about some cases, uh, some cheerleaders uh, who were uh, sat down down uh, because black cheerleaders in predominantly white squads who uh, were told, well, you know, you can't wear your braids or you can't wear your power puffs or your hair needs to fit into uh, into this um, uh, this particular uh, style or ponytail uh, holder. And so here that is an act of violent, a violent cultural uh, attack um, and 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 so the uh, third way is black bodies are welcomed in white space as long as they're performing stereotypical functions at uh, at stereotypical uh, times. And so when I think about um, this kind of um, somewhat milder form of racial oppression that's gripped the U.S. Um, uh, and how... Uh, how it helps to erase racism. There was a image that uh, Safe House Progressive Alliance for Nonviolence did um, uh, in the early 2000s, and, uh, and and someone's adapted it uh, more recently. It's a, a kind of a triangle image that in the top of the triangle then says, okay, here's what we as a society understand and agree upon as overt white supremacy. Uh, but then that's the very tip top and below they have all of these covert uh, forms of white supremacy that exist in society but they're socially acceptable right and so you know lynching is at the top of that overt uh, white supremacist socially unacceptable uh, oppression but in this image, they talk about racial profiling. Again, these are the kind of covert, socially acceptable, uh, acceptable means. And they, they because, uh, because we have 
as a society, you know, typically um, taken the binary approach. Well, at least they're not burning crosses and yelling in, 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 right? And so so there's an idea that, well, that's what racism is. No, (laughs) no. There are lots of ways, whether it's the school to prison pipeline or Confederate flags or police uh, brutality or a Eurocentric uh, curriculum that ignores uh, our perspectives and views, whether it's continuing housing discrimination uh, in society that perpetuates uh, the race wealth uh, wealth gap, uh, whether it is blaming the victim, whether it's allegations of colorblindness, uh, you know, whether it's you know it's just a joke. Uh, we um, we try to erase. We try to erase our own culpability uh, for continuing uh, racial oppression in society when we fail to acknowledge that those things, not just the tippy top, uh, are also also, um, um, supporting, uh, maintaining white supremacy in society. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And so in, in chapter 10 of this book, you focus on sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. Uh, I wonder if you could, uh, which is echoed by a number of different uh, quotes within that chapter, and I, I wonder if you could just explain what's meant by this and the danger of those that fall into that category. Yes. And so uh, MLK is uh, often quoted and, uh, and, 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 and yet not uh, always understood as uh, for how radical, you know, the these, uh, ideas are. And so, uh, so I use that title comes from uh, a Martin Luther King uh, Jr. quote that says, nothing in the world is more dangerous, more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious uh, stupidity. Uh, and that's from his 1963, a sermon from his 1963 book, uh, Strength uh, to Love. And so for me, uh, I, I say that sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity are two sides of the same coin, uh, that in an era where information is readily available, uh, it is only uh, through a conscientious act that we can remain uh, ignorant. And so, uh, so my examination, you know, challenges readers to acknowledge that, uh, that these are willful states, Right, sincere ignorance, conscientious stupidity; those are willful states, um, and 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 it's a willful state um, that's there in part to make inaction more palatable. Um, and so, the role uh, that um, that whites play uh, in maintaining the oppression of. Uh, of blacks and brown folks in society, uh, uh, the the role uh, that they play in continuing racialized oppression, many people want to uh, want to ignore, and they point to things like I didn't own any slaves, or you know that was so long ago, and and I say that you're ignorance of the continuing role that history plays and the way history reverberates through uh, through you know our current life so think about the Central Park birding incident uh, is one that I talk about uh, a lot in uh, in the book and uh, recently we saw Terrell Owens a uh, NFL Hall of Fame uh, 
former football player who was in his neighborhood driving uh, to his mailbox when uh, a white woman neighbor stops him and uh, and tries to chastise him, you know, saying, you know, you're driving too fast and uh, and the police are called and she makes some other allegations and she very quickly says, what am I supposed to do? A black man is, you know, uh, in my face. A black man is talking uh, to me. Of course, I'm afraid. And she, uh, like the woman in Central uh, Park, you know, threatens to, um, yeah, to call police. Or, uh, you know, the idea is, you know, weaponizing uh, these old historical false narratives from history uh, about uh, the bestiality of black men, about their uh, desires to uh, to uh, to rape uh, white women. And so I'm able to trace in the book, looking at uh, Ida B. Wells and looking at some of the insights that she uh, unveils. Uh, and, and she has a quote where she says, nobody in the South believes that threadbare lie uh, about black men, you know, raping uh, white women. Um, and, uh, and so what Ida B. Wells uncovers is that, uh, that there, uh, there are two things going on. Uh, one is, uh, white women entering into consensual, uh, sexual relations with black men, but the other is, uh, that, uh, black men who, and women who've had, uh, successes in, uh, in business that, uh, that whites were fearful of that competition and use this, uh, to, uh, to push back. So, so I ask people, uh, to, to look at the present, uh, but to not be ignorant of the past and to weave that into their analysis and in conclusions about what might be going on uh, here and that your, your ignorance of it is no excuse. That again, either sincere ignorance or conscientious stupidity, those are two sides of the same coin and overcoming the evils uh, of this world requires a profound internal struggle. And I encourage people to have have that profound uh, struggle and to ask the question, do our actions as individuals and as a society align with what we purport to be and, and, and think uh, that we are? Uh, and, and so that allegation of being a colorblind society, all people created uh, equal, those are ideals that we should uh, uh, strive for, uh, but I, I don't understand how people can uh, can say that we are there. <laughs> and what one thing that I love about your your this work is that you use some great modern day examples from Travis Miller Sr. to Rachel Nichols to Derek Chauvin uh, to really show the new order of racial oppression. Um, I wonder if you could just share one of these examples and sort of tie it to this framework that you're using in the book. Yes, yes. I, I'll probably use, uh, uh, yeah, continue with, um, oh, darn, uh, Ahmaud Aubrey, but I, I, I have to say that Travis Miller uh, uh, incident, you know, still gets, uh, gets at, tugs at my, uh, at my heart. So for readers, uh, listeners who don't, uh, who don't know, uh, Travis Miller was uh, a young uh, black man driving through a neighborhood in Oklahoma, uh, a gated white uh, community. He gained entree to the community uh, because the person he was delivering to, you know, gave him uh, the code. He's, he's in a work truck. He is wearing a work uniform. Uh, he has someone with him in the car, another black man. They make the delivery and on their way out, they are blocked and prevented from leaving the community by uh, a white, I believe he's the president of the homeowners association. He has blocked them and wants to know why they are in the space. Uh, and it is 
isn't it obvious? You know, I'm in a work truck. I've got on my work uniform demands, uh, demands that, uh, that they give him information about how they gained access, uh, to this space. So maybe I will stick with, uh, with Travis Miller, uh, senior, cause the frames, uh, that I identify that are commonly used to justify or rationalize violence against, uh, black bodies, you know, one of those is uh, it's all uh, it's all white space, uh, and and that analytical frames built on uh, this status holders idea of their entitlement to the absolute right to exclude others uh, to the space. And so here uh, we see you know this white uh, uh, homeowner who again is blocking them and refuses to let them out. And again, my legal career, I'm like, wait a minute, that's, that's false imprisonment. I don't know the statutes in Oklahoma, uh, but, uh, but you can see he's preventing them from going on. Travis Miller in his head is thinking through all of the eventualities and he's like, he can drive on the lawn, uh, but then that might subject him to further attack. Again, he's presumed a criminal. That's one of my frames. And so if he drives on the lawn, tearing up the lawn space, then again, he's, he's presumed, uh, he's presumed a criminal. Uh, it might get back to his employer and his employer could punish him. So you can see there's an economic attack. There's a cultural, uh, attack going on. There's a psychological, uh, attack going on. Another of the frames is you don't belong here. And so the homeowner never assumes that he is there for some legitimate purpose, even when he's wearing this uniform. This exchange goes on for almost uh, over 30 minutes. Uh, Travis Miller Sr. starts recording the exchange. He calls his boss and he's like, I'm sorry, I could usually handle this better, but you know, I've had two recent deaths in the family and I just can't handle this idiocy. This, this is idiotic. Um, the Another white homeowner comes out and gets in the exchange. Just tell us who you are. Just tell us why you're here. Finally, uh, we have in a nod to history, the idea of the historical fear factor um, and this historical fear, uh, fear factor uh, says those who employ this frame rely on stereotypes, historical inaccuracies, false perceptions to evoke notions of threat. And so, you know, the homeowners association president and his crony say, you're here for some illegitimate purpose. It is finally the homeowner that he, Travis Miller delivered to, comes out, vouches for him, again, a historical nod. Uh, but we also see the Massa has spoken thra uh, frame threaded through here. Um, and in that Massa has spoken frame, you have the, uh, the two uh, homeowners who are demanding, tell me where you are, how, how you got in here, what you're doing here. They legitimately expect that, uh, that Travis Miller will, uh, will, will hearken to all of their uh, commands. How, ever inappropriate uh, they might uh, might seem. Uh, for them, it's Travis Miller's refusal to answer their questions that seems irrational or unreasonable and not their own performance. Because again, for them, they are protecting that space. It, that he, and, and so we see the fifth frame that you don't belong here. Uh, and they are protecting, uh, protecting that. And so I start the book or early in the book, I talk about Travis Miller because he records that um, and he continues the recording after the homeowners move out of his way. And you can, in that exchange, just feel how, again, we wear the weight that grins and lies, it hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. You can feel the weight of this attack on Travis Miller. And he says to uh, the person next to him says, you know, should we go? And Travis is like, I don't know. I don't know if they've called the police uh, or I don't know if the police are still coming. Um, and so he calls the police because he hasn't done anything wrong. But is it OK if I leave? 
as he leaves out of the community, he drives slowly under the speed limit because he doesn't know what's going to happen if, if, if other people are going to attack him. And it's after he gets out that he sheds a tear, right? Um, and I pause there for a minute because it still hurts. It still hurts. And, and it's a pain that, um, that I know, that my friends know, that uh, anyone who um, I know who has lived in this Black embodiment in this society, and anti-Blackness is a global phenomenon, let me say that, but I write about it in U.S. Uh, society. It's a pain that we know and don't often share. Um, and, and I wanted people to understand that when they say, uh, that, uh, that, 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 that these attacks, uh, don't hurt and that people should shake them off, um, that that is absurd and it creates an additional weight in navigating life that other people don't have to bear, uh, who don't identify as black, don't have to bear. And that is unfair um, and it takes a, uh, a toll and in fact uh, is literally killing many of us. And in, in chapter 11, you actually take us through uh, policy uh, and some policy changes that you uh, think that could alleviate some of the effects of sort of racism, racial exclusion. Um, and I wonder if you could just explain just a few of these prescribed policy changes and the effects that you think that they could have. Yes. And the policy chapter and you, uh, uh, since you've read the book, will know that was one that I struggled with. And it was the shortest chapter in the book because in many ways I resent the fact uh, that being asked to even solve a problem that I didn't create. Uh, but I've also, uh, I, I also want to make the world a better, uh, a better place. Uh, and I want to remove that excuse of ignorance from the scales of some folks' eyes. Uh, and, and so just being able to say that, even in my capacity as, you know, as an academic, uh, I've been asked to solve other, uh, other people's problems as an department chair. Oh, well, what do you think about, you know, how can we do a better job, uh, in, uh, in, in, in being anti, uh, anti-racist? And I'm like, are you going to come and solve my department's problems? But, but, <laughs> but again, I understand the idea of, of wanting to help guide people. Okay. What can, uh, what can we do? And so I do have some, uh, some policy uh, recommendations in the book. I know that there's no panacea, there's no cure-all uh, uh, for everything. So uh, one of the things I just suggest is uh, that people acknowledge and, and, and those who write such um, write such policies about, let's say, in a school context, uh, and you're writing uh, writing policies about bullying and those uh, uh, those practices. Um, that it's different in terms of like bullying as a generic term um, allows us to mask the the concept of uh, of racism. And so uh, I want to understand and bullying practices and bullying policies are important, but I want people to understand that daily micro uh, aggressions inflict uh, real harm um, and that the perpetrators should therefore incur real and clear consequences. Uh, so I think a lot of stuff going back to that, uh, that safe house image that, uh, that I talked about, uh, where they looked at some of the covert ways that white supremacy is maintained in society. And it included, you know, right responses and ideas like, oh, they were just joking. I want people to understand that microaggressions inflict real harm and people, perpetrators need to incur uh, uh, consequences. And the, and the sanctions uh, don't have to be grave, but failure to address that kind of, 
um, that kind of harm uh, is not acceptable. And so, uh, so one of those policy uh, recommendations would be that there, uh, it's not a zero tolerance uh, uh, policy in the way that that has uh, has harmed, uh, often harmed our our community. But there should be real and clear uh, consequences, and we need to name things and not use those umbrella terms that make them look um, more sanitized than they uh, than they actually are. Um, so, so another policy recommendation uh, would be, uh, especially in the midst of uh, this moment, it's easy for even uh, well-meaning people to sometimes move too quickly. So there's a tension, there's a dance here. Uh, so change is overdue and it must happen. Uh, but I also think it's important that before implementing a policy, it's important to understand, to go through that actual work of understanding whether that policy is going to disparately impact any, uh, any group. Uh, so I go back to the concept of something like uh, like grooming, uh, and uh, and so if a school has a legitimate interest in uh, in a hair policy, uh, is it really legitimate if it's disparately impacting uh, only people of uh, people of color? I want them to uh, to consider uh, all the policies that might be implemented through an intersectional lens and to uh, invite. Uh, that lens. And so more than anything, it's to invite the inquiry. Oftentimes the work that we do is knee jerk to respond to something, but it is not reflective. Uh, so recently there uh, were a couple of schools in uh, in California that canceled their football season. There was a mock slave auction uh, at one of these, and it broke my heart to learn that, um, that the only uh, black football players on the team were auctioned off by their uh, white and Latinx um, uh, teammates. The only the black students were uh, were auctioned off, and when this came to light, uh, the black students, some of them, uh, or all of the, the black students, received harsher punishment than some of uh, the white students who 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 participated through observation, through uh, through watching. And for me, I, I was like, wow, you really failed. You really got it wrong, uh, uh, school uh, district. You really got it wrong if you don't understand uh, that they shouldn't have been punished more punitively uh, than, uh, than others. And it just hearkened back to me for history to think about, I guess, all of those people who, uh, who packed pictures lunches and observe, uh, watched lynchings, you know, it, 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 it tries to suggest that they don't have a level of culpability uh, either. And so, uh, so I encourage people uh, to use that kind of uh, intersectional lens and to understand um, it from uh, other uh, perspectives and to employ uh, a historical lens as well. And so speaking of like this current moment, right, you you write early in the book that this is a moment when the potential for radical democratic social change exists. And so I wonder what what gives you hope uh, that that change is possible in our present moment? Yes. Part uh, of it is my uh, part of it is my Christian faith uh, that I just remain, you know, ever hopeful because as um as an academic, as an academic, uh, I, I thought about the potential for this moment in terms of all of the video evidence that we have of the attacks that are going on. And so as I sat down in writing this and looked back at history, I was like, oh, wow, we've been here before, right? We've had this potential, this radical potential for uh, for photography or other videographic means. I 
I think about, you know, Rodney King, you know, but even as I talk about in the book, tracing it back uh, to the uh, Paris Exposition and all of these, uh, all of these wonderful images that we have of, of Frederick Douglass and that radical uh, potential. But I still, uh, I still remain hopeful. Uh, and, and part of my hope now comes from the fact that we will not, that I won't remain silent and that there are many others who, uh, lots of others before me that I draw upon and contemporaries who have failed to remain silent. And so I remain uh, remain hopeful. And I think of the Audre Lorde uh, quote about our silence. It won't save us anyway, right? And so if I'm going down, uh, I am going to go down. I'm going to tell you about yourself. <laughs> I am going to tell you about yourself as I see it. And I do it in love because I truly, truly love, uh, love people, uh, love life and want a better world for all of us to live in. But it is important for me to show you, show you. Uh, and, and so that is what, what remains for me most radical uh, about uh, about this moment. I write a little bit about, you know, uh, Nicole uh, Hannah-Jones and uh, and that uh, uh, attack as an academic and the fact that, uh, that the fact that anyone would even try to attack her credentials to me uh, is a signal to the rest of us that uh, black academics that you don't even uh, many of you, most of us don't come close to the kind of credentials that she had uh, has. And if we will attack her, then you better be quiet uh, or we will come after you too. And so my hope now comes from the fact that we will not remain uh, remain silent. And so I am grateful uh, that uh, the record... Will uh, will reflect and will show, and we are an amazing, uh, resilient uh, people. Uh, I am very uh, proud uh, to identify uh, as a black uh, woman, and we are an amazing and resilient, uh, resilient people. And so I am, uh, I am hopeful uh, about all. Um, that the uh, that the future holds, if for no other reason than hope itself is a radical act of resistance. Uh, so, uh, what sort of audience did you imagine when you were writing this work? So, I I think I wanted to talk to. Uh, it's interesting uh, because I think I started out uh, wanting to talk to uh, whites. Um, and in the end, uh, I, I do... I do want to talk to uh, I do want to talk to that audience, but I also want it um, just for uh, just for my uh, for my cousin and them. <laughs> I want it because in many ways, uh, the what I talk about is not, it's just the wisdom of everyday Black folk. <laughs> it is not particularly insightful. It is the wisdom of everyday Black folk as to how we are able to navigate space and not lose our minds and not lose our humanity. It says, I see you. I know that you have, you know, your your cry has been, uh, I am not a racist, or how can I be a racist? And it says it's it's just because I have some letters behind my name, because I have JD PhD, uh, that I'm hopeful that somebody uh will uh will uh will listen. Um I also was always moved by the fact that the first time, uh first recorded time that social science evidence has been, you know, persuasive in the Supreme Court. It was in the Brown decision uh, and uh, the Clark, the Dolls uh, experiment and, you know, um, 
uh, and that experiment has some problems itself, but still the potential of social scientific uh, evidence to be persuasive. I wanted to get it uh, written down because I didn't know if I would be here tomorrow. Uh, my mother had uh, COVID and was hospitalized for 12 days. My sister was hospitalized for 17 days with uh, with COVID. Uh, I, my husband and I uh, had uh, had COVID. I needed to know that if I was wasn't here, um, that it would speak to my children and it would speak to other people's children and let them know, no, you are not crazy, uh, that yes, this is, um, this is a world that is radically uh, anti-Black and doesn't even know it. And these are the ways that it operates. And it's okay, boo, I got you. And what do you want readers to take away from your book? I want them to see themselves. I want them to see their own complicity in maintaining continuing racial oppression uh, in society. I want them to uh, to know uh, better and do better. And I'm some ways encouraged by that. I have uh, um, a, a friend that I've known uh, for a few years, uh, Maria Gittin. She's a 78-year-old uh, white uh, woman who... Uh, who uh, uh, wrote a book about her experience in uh, in the civil rights um, uh, movement, and so you know we have uh, we've talked from time to time. But as she read the book, she would write to me and just say, "Barb, I had no idea." Uh, and some of the conversations that I've had with my uh, friends, white friends, and some of the conversations that I myself have been a part in, I realize how harmful uh, and and how off base some of those uh, have uh, have been, and so the fact that uh, that she would reach out uh, to encourage me uh, in that way, uh, because I do expect attacks to come too, but that's all right. That is absolutely all right. This is the world the way I see it. You have met most of those people who would attack have never walked around in this black embodiment. And so uh, for them to suggest uh, that, uh, that they have superior knowledge to, uh, to my own experience and years, uh, lived experience and years of research is itself uh, absurd uh, and, uh, and laughable. So, um, so I, I would say uh, this audience is for everyone. Uh, I, I give the party example uh, in the book uh, that, uh, that I invited a group of my friends when I was in college to a party. And they all had a different, uh, different meaning of the word uh, party, uh, and so uh, so I realize uh, that it may be a conversation starter for some people. Um, uh, Carita Brown, who's an amazing scholar, she's at Emory uh, now. She uh, she shared with me that you write a book uh, and it's your baby, and then you uh, you put it out in the world, and it comes back to you in new ways, and so. Uh, so I'm still kind of think wrestling with uh, what do I uh, what do I want from this baby that I've put uh, put out into the world. But the fact that it's out there in the world really feels good. Well, Dr. Combs, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, so I'll ask just one uh, last question here. What are you working on now? So now I'm working on a, a, a co-authored book. It's the first time I've written a co-authored book with uh, Todd Shaw, is a political scientist at University of uh, South Carolina, and with uh, Kirk Foster, uh, who is a social worker um, at East Carolina University. It's a black places of empowerment. So it looks uh, at the concept of linked fate to understand whether or not uh, that still exists in um, uh, exists today. So we're, we've been working together for 10 years on various projects. We're really excited about this uh, book uh, length project and, um, and just living my life like it's golden. <laughs> My friends will be so proud of me. I only this is the first time I've laughed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like a, a really great project. I'm sure we'll all look out for that. And I'm glad that you're living your life. Um, and uh, 
Dr. Robert Combs, I just want to thank you for being on the show today. Um, your your work is wonderful. Bodies out of place theorizing anti-blackness in U.S. society. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you take care. Oh, thank you. And you are doing amazing things. Thank you for all you do. Thank you.